Christ is risen. risen It's good to have David with us. Let's give them another hand. I want to share with you this morning about the book of James. A quick read through the letter. It's technically not a letter. It's, it's an odd piece of work. It's in some ways like a letter, in some ways like a sermon. It doesn't really fit in any kind of genre description. And it's a book that has had a very, in some ways, troubled history. Scholars are not sure exactly when it was written. It could have been written very early on. In fact, some people think it was the first book written of our New Testament. And some think it was written very late, one of the last books written. But what everyone agrees upon is that it was written during a time of intense conflict. And they're just not sure, was it written at the beginning of that conflict or at the end? And the conflict was this sect of Jews with really strange beliefs who will become Christians. These people who understand themselves as sons of Abraham and followers of Jesus. Living in Jerusalem with a commitment to Moses and a commitment to the Jewish way of life and the temple, and yet also a commitment to Jesus as Lord. And this creates enormous instability, both within what we will call the Christian community and outside of it. And you can read about this in the book of Acts and other early Christian literature. And James, this letter, was written either right at the beginning of that controversy or toward the end as Christians began to spread out in the evangelism. And it, it's controversial right from the very beginning. It's one of the last books of our New Testament to be canonized. As late as the 4th century, it's still being debated whether or not it should be included as a, a book of Scripture or not. And for much of the church's history of those first 400 years or so, churches didn't use it. It, it wasn't a part of the, the liturgy. It wasn't a part of devotion. And you can find figures in churches, communities here and there that do, but the majority did not. And then... Thanks to the influence of Augustine and a few others, it, it comes to be accepted as canon and is used in the church's liturgy, and then the Reformation happens. And the Reformation calls James into question all over again. And if you've ever had a class on the Reformation, you know that Martin Luther, the reformer, famously refers to James as a strawy epistle. There's no gospel in it, he says. So he doesn't remove it from the canon altogether, but he says you should read it with caution. Because it's really not gospel. And from that point forward, and it'll be, next year will be 500 years since Luther's 95 Theses and we launched the Reformation, for, for almost 500 years now, in Protestant churches, James has been a controversial book. And if you've, if you've been around people who read the text closely, you know that the controversy is, is James in contra contradiction to Paul? Paul says we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. And James explicitly says we're saved by works and not by faith. So, People are, are troubled by this. But I think it's a book whose time has come. And it's ironic that it's a controversial book because this book was written to be peacemaking. The purpose of James was to bring Jew and Gentile alike to a realization that nobody really knew what was going on. That this letter, the wisdom of this letter is that not all faith is good faith. Not all conviction is holy conviction. Not everything we feel strongly about is, in fact, the truth. 
And not everything that we think of as normal is in fact God's purpose. What seems right to us may not be right to us. And I think particularly now, particularly now, we need this wisdom. The wisdom of someone who says to us in the midst of conflict, in the midst midst of upheaval, we need someone who says to us, maybe all of us need to just take a step back and reflect. What, What the book of James wants is for all of us to move toward a kind of discerning attentiveness, a kind of patient, joyful endurance as we wait on the Lord. It's a book for Advent. It's a book for living the Advent life. Now, I know this is obvious to all of you, but I, I, used, I don't do it much now, but I, I used to hunt a lot. But I didn't deer hunt. I, predator, I did predator hunting. Anyone ever done this for bobcats or coyotes or anything like this? This was my preferred sport for a long time. And then I quit for whatever reason. Maybe because I didn't like getting up that early. And... But here's, here's what I learned from that. And I was never terribly good at it because I would kind of get lost in my own thoughts and then I would only see the, the predator as it was leaving the, the range of fire, right? So I, like, I would see it, but I wouldn't be able to... I have lots of stories about that I could tell you. But one of the things that that is supposed to encouraging you is a kind of attentiveness, right? You're sitting there in the dark waiting for the sun to come up. You're making calls, usually some kind of distress call, maybe a wounded rabbit or something, and you're waiting for this predator to come at you, right? And you're supposed to be attentive, but still, right? You're not, you're not doing anything except paying attention, right? And that's costly, and you're supposed to wait until it gets just close enough and then spring into action. Right? I didn't always learn my own lesson too well. As I said, I would get lost in my own thoughts and too late. Right? And so many animals escaped and, and learned a life lesson about maybe not every predator call is one you want to respond to. So I was teaching them, I guess. In the, it's a very St. Francis kind of story. But the point is, that's the kind of attentiveness that if you want something less violent, bird watching. It, it's, it's that kind of attentiveness. And, and here's what I think our culture, we don't know this. And when I say our culture, I mean the larger Western capitalist culture, but I also mean more, more narrowly our Christian culture. We don't know how to wait attentively. Like me, sitting there under those trees in the pre-dawn, chill, we lose attention. We get lost in our own thoughts, or we never get still at all. And what James calls us to is a kind of life that's not passive, but it is inactive in certain ways. It's not resigned to not do anything. It's just committed to not do anything that will keep us from noticing what's coming to us. What What does it look like to live like that? So with that in mind, Let's look, we're going to look at several passages from this, from this letter. James 5 is where we'll start. And he uses this image of the farmer over and over and over again in this letter. And, I, and I, we'll just kind of follow that theme through the letter. James 5, we'll start there. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. 
Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who showed endurance. You haven't heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So notice he says, if you're going to live in this time of controversy, this time of conflict, you have to learn to be patient, like the farmer who waits. This is a fascinating image for me for lots of reasons, but one is that in a lot of evangelical traditions, the traditions that shape the churches that you and I have known, this image was used, but in the exact opposite way. So in the Industrial Revolution, evangelism became about technique. And there were, you can see this, for instance, in Charles Finney's letter, Lectures on Revival, in which he appeals to the farmer as the example of the one who has control over his destiny. And so Finney will say, the farmer doesn't wait for a crop. He doesn't just passively, inactively wait. He goes and plows a field and plants seed and waters the seed and cares for it and waits for the rain and knows when he's going to get what kind of crop he's going to get and when he's going to get it. And so in, in that frame of mind, the farmer is the one who's in control. The farmer is the one who's controlling nature, bending nature to his will. And so many of us have been raised in a spirituality that thinks of the Christian life like that. That you're the one and I am the one in control. If we learn the right principles, if we learn the right life verses, if we pray the right prayers, if we give the right amount of money, if we show up at service, if we do all the right things, we know what kind of crop we're going to get in the long run. Right? We're the ones in control, bending the nature of things to our will. But James appeals to the farmer for the exact opposite reason. The farmer does have some responsibility. He does have to plow the field. He does have to plant the seed. And he does have to have some knowledge of how the seasons work and what seeds will grow in what soil and what climates. But at the end of the day, the farmer is yielding to the nature of things, not making nature yield to him. What makes a farmer a good farmer is to know how things work and then being patient with it. He's patient, James says, with the crop. And what if, as Americans and as evangelicals and charismatic Christians, we've always been trying to make the nature of things yield to us, when what God wants us to learn is how to give up our own rights to yield ourselves to the nature of things. We see this in all kinds of ways, but let me give you this example of, of evangelism itself. So many times evangelism can be coercive. We're trying to convert by some kind of rhetorical force. We're trying to convince people violently that Jesus is the way. But perhaps evangelism is more about recognizing what God is already doing there and yielding our own, ourselves to that process. This is why my favorite image for evangelism is midwifery. Right? The midwife doesn't give the child. The midwife doesn't have the child. The midwife is just there with the one who's pregnant to help her through the process of giving birth. She yields to that moment. And, and what James is trying to teach us is that kind of yieldedness. We're more concerned about the yield in the sense of product. What's this crop going to yield for me? But God's more interested in yield in terms of our attitude, our posture toward him. Are we going to live yieldedly? And he says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And it's easy for us to think about as the end of all things, the coming of the Lord as the last appearing of Christ. 
But I don't think that's what James means. The coming of the Lord, of course, there is that. There is this climactic event that brings history to its fulfillment. But James, earlier in this letter, has said, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. What James is picturing is not the end-all coming of the Lord, but the daily coming of the Lord. The advent of Jesus that's there at every hand. And it's that that you have to be patient for. Because it's only when you're patient, when you are discerningly attentive, when you're not doing anything but paying attention, when you're yielded to the nature of things that aren't coming from you, that you realize Jesus has been here all along. When he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, that's not a technique. I heard this terrifying, terrifying testimony a couple of weeks ago. Maybe some of you saw it. It was all over Facebook. This woman was testifying about her transformation. And it was supposed to be encouraging, but sometimes you know what people mean to be encouraging doesn't exactly turn out like that. And there was a line in the testimony where she's saying, I find that she needed something in her life that, that wasn't, wasn't happening. And she, find, she said, I finally realized that if you want God to do what you need, you've got to make sure God knows you want God more than you want anything else. And she said, I want you to think of it like this. Think of what it would be like to have your head held forcibly underwater until right before you pass out, and then you're jerked up out of the water. And all you want is air. You're not thinking about anything. You're not feeling anything. You just... Your body is demanding air. She's like, God wants to know you want God like that. And if God knows you want God like that, then God will give you what you want. No, 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 that isn't God. Right? You don't water torture God into giving you something. You yield so you can realize God has always been there acting. God is already there. Patience is not about getting God to do something God wouldn't do otherwise. Patience is about recognizing what God is doing that you haven't seen yet because you've been too busy. You've been too loud. There's too much noise in your life that created by others or created by yourself. And so we have to learn patience. And then over and over in this letter, James immediately says, you want to know what patience is about? It's about what you do with the people around you that give you trouble. That's patience. Patience is, who are those people? David, just, just a few moments ago, David said, think of someone whose hope has died. Well, now I want you to encourage, think of someone who causes hope to die in you. Who are those people? And maybe you know them personally, maybe you don't. Maybe these are, are public figures, maybe these are people you work with, but whoever those people are that just make you ill, it's when you can see them differently that you've become patient. That's the test. The test is, can you hold your tongue long enough? Can you quiet yourself down long enough to see how God might be working even in the people that you think are the most difficult? And this is why James says, do not grumble. Now, again, there's a part of us that want, we want to control the nature of things. We're like Finney's farmer that wants to make things yield to us. So when we're in a situation where there's something to grumble about, we want to change the situation. If I'm in, engaged in a way in which I find some of you troubling, what I want to do is change the situation so I don't have to find you troubling. 
But James is, is far different. He doesn't want you to try to change your situation. He wants, to try to, he wants you to change the way you're postured in that situation so you can see what God is doing there. And we're, by we, we American Christians, we're not very good at this because it's so easy for us to change our situation. If we're unsettled with one church, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of churches within a stone's throw. We can, joke, we can go there. If we don't like what we're seeing on this channel, we can change the channel. If we don't like the way they treated us at this restaurant, we can go to its competitor. We live in a world in which we're overwhelmed by options. So whatever doesn't please us, we can immediately walk away to something we think will be pleasing. But you can't live the Christian life that way. Any form of Christian life that doesn't teach you patience isn't a form of the Christian life. And what we have to have nurtured in us is this patience that leads to the yieldedness to what God is doing in the world apart from my will. Not my will, but your will be done. We see this play out in ways that are also surprising. Because unlike the farmer, we don't exactly know what the crop is going to be. Because ultimately, this is God's work. In this same letter, James appeals to the story of Abraham. And this is the, one of the controversial passages where he says, Abraham was not justified by faith. Abraham was justified by works because he was justified when he laid his son Isaac on the altar. And, of course, then and to this day, that's continued to be a controversial line. But what, what I want to draw attention to in that story now is in Genesis 22, when we're reading about Abraham and Isaac, they're on their way to the mountain, and Isaac says to Abraham, where is the lamb? Right. Isaac had enough intuition to realize something's not right. We're going to make a sacrifice, and we don't have the thing that needs to be sacrificed. And I love my dad, but mm, where, where's the lamb, right? And, and Abraham responds to him and says, oh, don't worry. God himself will provide a lamb. And then, of course, they get to the mountain, and Abraham is thinking, Isaac is the lamb. And he puts him on the altar, he, he binds him, he raises the knife, and then, the, of course, the angel speaks and says, do not kill him. And then the text says, and Abraham saw a ram caught in the thicket. And then he took the ram, and he offered it to God and said, on this mountain, God has provided what he promised. Now, did you notice anything? What, did, what was Isaac's question? Where is the lamb? And what was Abraham's response? God will provide a lamb. Now what Abraham is thinking is, Isaac, you're the lamb. But what God actually provided was a ram, not a lamb. Because when you're waiting on God to act, you're waiting on God to act. And it is not entered into your heart or your mind what God is going to do, right? We cannot conceive what God is going to do. So we can trust that he's going to bring good, but we have to trust knowing we, we can't anticipate exactly what that good will be. And part of the right kind of patience is to recognize even when we know God is going to act, he's going to act in ways that are better than we're imagining. Yes, God's going to provide. Not a lamb and not your son, but a ram caught in the thicket. That's part of what you have to learn to recognize God's action. That when God acts, God acts in ways that we couldn't have anticipated, but that doesn't mean it wasn't God. In fact, that's the sign that it's God and not my own wish fulfillment. 
It's not me seeing what I want to see. There's another similar story Jesus tells to his disciples. They ask him, they said there's a prophecy that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come back to life. Is that going to happen? And he says, oh, it, it already is happening. It has happened. In fact, if you can see it, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy. They're disappointed. Like, we thought Elijah was going to come back to life. And Jesus says, no, it's fulfilled. It's just not fulfilled quite like you thought. So part of patient endurance, part of the attentiveness God wants to stir in us is the kind of attentiveness that recognizes, one, we have to yield to the nature of things. Two, when God brings the, the harvest, it may not be, in fact, it almost certainly will not be what we expect. It will be better than we expect if we know how to accept it. We've got to have the willingness to yield to it. So here's, here's, I think, the lesson of James shortly, and then we're going to read a couple more passages. If we want to yield to what God wants to do, if we want to posture ourselves attentively to what God is doing in the world, we have to learn first to hold our tongues, second to deny our desires, good and bad, and thirdly, we have to care for the weak and the needy. James is, is less interested in how you think and more about how you act. In, in Aristotelian terms, he's less concerned about speculation and more about practice. How do you live as a Christian? Not what do you think about the Christian life. Not what are your thoughts about God or what do you think a Christian should be. What do you actually do? Learn to do that. Learn to hold your tongue. Learn to deny even your good desires at, in, in the right ways. And then care for the weak. Look at what he says in James chapter 3. Who is wise, this is verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. Gentleness born of wisdom. Gentle how? To whom? Right? Not, not to God. I don't have to be gentle with God. I have to be gentle with you. You have to be gentle with me. Please be very gentle with me. But gentleness born of wisdom. Learn how to treat one another gently. How, how to engage one another without breaking one another. One of the most insightful statements I've heard along these lines came from Stanley Cavell, who was a philosopher, taught a lot about film theory. His dad was a, was a jeweler who worked with diamonds, and I heard Stanley Cavell once say, what he learned from his dad is what tact means. That tact is force precisely applied. And he says, imagine someone shaping a diamond. Tact is the ability to strike that diamond in a way that shapes it, that gives it a clean facet and doesn't shatter the rock. That's how Christians are supposed to live with one another. We're not so yielded that we're amorphous, that we have no character, that whatever you want, you get. But we're also not so forceful that we just bludgeon everyone around us with the love of Jesus, amen? Right? We, we don't just terrorize other people's lives with our own desires. We live tactfully. We speak the truth, but we always speak it only in love. We live faithfully, but we live faithfully in ways that bring hope to our neighbors, not shame. And, and this is the kind of the gentleness that he wants. If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. 
For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and wickedness of every kind. Selfish ambition. The desire to fake, to take the nature of things and force them into your mold. That's selfish ambition. It's to try to make this life what you want it to be. To make your neighbor who you want them to be. To make your family who you want them to be. Like that selfish ambition is the desire to control what is not yours to control. You will violate it. But you'll vi- the key is to give that up. To learn to live open-handedly. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. Just a couple days ago, I was given the dog of my dream. Some of you may have seen it on Facebook. It's a black Russian terrier. Does anybody know anything about this breed? My puppy, she's six months old, is 72 pounds. When she's full-grown, she'll be somewhere between 120 and 140 pounds. She looks exactly like a bear. Like, I, I'm serious. She looks exactly like a bear. My wife is willing to yield. Right? We already have two other dogs, including a little bitty chihuahua that my wife does not exactly love. For, but that's my daughter's. And this, this dog that I have now, Lola is her name, she is, first of all, she's massive. Secondly, you can imagine how much she eats, right? And when she drinks, she's bred from a Russian water dog, and when she drinks, so we have to give her a huge bucket of water. When she drinks, she puts her whole head in the bucket. And she's incredibly hairy. So when she comes up out of that bucket, right, she's just soaked. So whenever we're giving her water, we have to stand there with beach towels, to wring out her beard before we go on to anything else. My wife is willing to yield. Do you understand? Right? Exactly. Exactly. This is, this is what yieldedness looks like. I mean, if, if you know Julie at all, I mean, she likes order. She's not OCD, but you might mistake it for that if you weren't really attentive. And yet, here she is. She knows that I've wanted this dog all of my life. And so she's, you know, she, what she's saying? She's saying, okay, I, I can learn to live with this. That is the heart of Christian living. Right? It's recognizing, you know what? My neighbor needs something that is going to inconvenience me. But I can yield. And here's the beauty. Something about posturing yourself yieldedly opens you up to realize a joy you couldn't have received otherwise. It does something for you, not just for them. So he says, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And then this line, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. This is the way the New Jerusalem Bible puts it. The peace sown by peacemakers brings a harvest of justice. The peace sown by peacemakers brings a harvest of justice. You want to make this world right? James says, stop trying to force it to be right. You want to bring justice to a situation? Stop trying to manage it. Learn to yield. Learn tact. Learn to be gentle. Learn to be patient. Learn to let the nature of things be what it is. And wait on God. 
and you'll bring justice. You'll bring the right when you stop trying to force the right. That's the key. One more passage and we're done. James chapter 1. Every generous act of giving, verse 17, with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's this theme of farming again. We are his planting. And when we learn to yield like Jesus yields, we are the yield. We are the crop. We are the first fruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Footnote, especially when you're right. Especially when you're right. When you are right, your anger subverts the truth. It does not produce God's righteousness. It does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourself of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. So here, here's James's message. You've got to learn to be like the farmer who yields to the nature of things. And when you live that kind of yieldedness, when you're willing to yield to the inconveniences that are created by living with people and live attentively, you become fertile soil for the life of God to take root. And when that begins to grow up in you, you become the harvest. And all of a sudden in the midst of the world, the image of Jesus is growing with people who know how to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile, who know how to give the ministry of just not saying what they think when they think it, who know how to make space for other people to experience God as they need to. So I think the word for James, from James for you and me is be patient. There's a lot that's wrong in this world right now. There's a lot that's wrong, I'm sure, in, min in many of your lives on a very small scale. But whatever it is, you won't make it right forcibly. If you try to control it, if you try to put your hands on it, you will break other people. And you will harden yourself against what God is trying to do in you. Learn tact. Learn gentleness. Learn the kind of patience that recognizes God is at work here. And I don't have to make anything happen. He's the creator. I just have to be attentive. I just have to be attentive. Let me pray for you and then Pastor Brent's going to come. Lord, help us to learn this wisdom that is from above. This wisdom that is peaceful and peacemaking, that's gentle, that's willing to yield. Teach us, God, to trust you so much that we realize we don't have to control the world, that we don't have to manage every aspect of our lives, much less the lives of other people around us, that we don't have to put our hands on everything. We can live with some, with some openness, trusting that you are active and that what you bring, even if it's not what we expect, what you bring will be better than we could have imagined. You will bring righteousness and justice and peace. Help us to learn that in this season. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.